We're back again for another episode of Multifamily Forward presented by Mark Taylor Residential. I'm Adam Greco and the handsome man to my left, Mr. John Carlson. Thank you, Adam. I you appreciate like that? that. Yeah, I do. I do. Does that get me uh, a higher ranking in uh, in Mark Taylor it with does. the compliments? It does. It You're does now help. in the top 20. All right, good. <laughs> Finally. Um, John, we, uh, we've had a couple great uh, topics already, but I think this one is going to be one that everyone's going to be interested in. And of course, we're going to be talking about the impact of debt and structured finance within uh, multifamily. Um, and we have a great, great uh, guest speaker. In fact, uh, I'm blessed to be uh, sitting next to him. Where I can't wait to finally introduce him. Uh, but that guest is Rocco Mandala, the uh, vice chairman of CBRE for debt and structured finance and capital markets. Um, I figured we'd start off, let's just discuss, because um, most, including me, do not have a, a full grasp on what debt and equity mean within our industry. So uh, would you kind of just review the basics? Sure. Uh, you know, I think, you know, if you look at equity specifically, so we'll start there, um, you know, groups with a significant amount of equity or access to um, have a, I'll say, a leg up in the acquisition world. So if they're attacking a deal specifically, equity matters. And, you know, we'll get into that with Rocco more specifically, but on the debt side, um, if you look historically, and you know, we're a data company. So if you look back historically, and just go back to 2021, we had the most transactions on record in Phoenix right. Metro 252. Uh, no coincidence that 19 and 18 were were third and fourth behind 2005. Why is that? Because capital was really cheap. Uh, if you just look at the interest rates, that's what drives that transaction activities without question. So with, I'll say, free money, uh, it was much easier to go out and attack the market and buy, buy deals. So fast forward to 2023 only 23 transactions in the first half. Uh, why is that? Rates have skyrocketed, cap rates have moved up and are, and are less compressed. So of course you have less deal velocity. So uh, we'll get into the nuances of that, but that's that's the high level. Always learning something with you, always. I try. And I have to assume it is always very, very important uh, for everyone, uh, n not just uh, uh, developers, but uh, ownership groups, uh, PMCs, property management companies, why is it so important to keep our finger on the pulse when it comes to debt and equity? Uh, it, it truly gives you an understanding of the market, right? So, I mean, you can predict if if rates go to five and a half or six and a half percent in this environment, based on the, I'll say, buyer psychology, it's going to be tougher for, for guys to pull the trigger. There's yeah. going to be more of a, a freeze or pause. So uh, it helps you predict what's going to happen. Uh, if you look back historically, back to the 80s, you can see those ebbs and flows in our charts. And I'm sure uh, once we bring Rocco on, we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, everything that's currently under construction and it's, of course, trying to even get anything done now as far as getting out of the ground moving forward. Absolutely. Uh, what do you think? Should we bring him on? Let's bring him on. All right. Well, without further ado, it's my pleasure to introduce... Mr. Rocco Mandala, the vice chairman from CBRE. And as John mentioned prior, uh, b before we started, we're, we got a little spicy Italian sandwich going on, <laughs> a fellow Paisan. So Rocco, such a pleasure to have you. Hey, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. We're going to start out just to allow our viewers to uh, know a little bit about you. So are you ready for a couple of questions, a little rapid fire ac action? Let's get Let's personal. Do it. Let's get a little personal. So Rocco, when you're out of the office, what do you enjoy doing for, with your free time? Well, mostly I spend time with my family, uh, my significant other, Lisa, and my grandson, Jack. So I put so much focus on the work side of things that when I'm not working, I like to spend time with them and I like to relax and 
you know, work on health things and eating things and stuff that I don't do every day because you're busy working. So that's kind of just an all around good human being. And I, right? I'll walk and I'll spend some time on the beach. I like that. And traveling here and there. Good. Does Jack know what debt coverage ratios mean yet? <laughs> he will. Mark's working on him on that one. It's coming. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, let's go for number two here. So if you could take one book on a deserted island, which book would you choose? Well, you know, I thought a lot about that. And there's a lot of books that I would like to read. I listen to books mostly than reading the books. It's just quicker. But as I was thinking about it, I'm like, I need to be healthy and I need to survive and I need to know how to do it. So I thought about Castaways and I watched the movie with Tom Hanks to kind of see how he survived on a deserted island. And then I thought I'd get a book oh, to even bring better. <laughs> nice. Uh, the bell. You know, it's a and it's a simple book. It's it's a child's book, but it kind of gives you some basic ideas about water, fire, how to get food and well, how I to love do it. it. So I thought that would hopefully lead me to the next place. There we go. Perfect. I love the SOS on the front. And the I mean, SOS. Yes, yeah. that's the and best. And that was part of it too to kind of like be able to do such a thing. I love it. I love it. And uh, lastly, what is one thing about you that people wouldn't expect? That I would truly like to be a, to have been a musician. Any specific? Uh... Um, I played upright bass in high school. Okay. And in the orchestra. And I always wanted to play bass guitar and I never did. So now every time I go see bands or not, not even fancy bands, but just at a club, Belly Up, for example. Nice. I just watched the bass player and I love it. So at some point, I think that I'm kind of going to do that. I, I'm not quite uh, there as a expert in more than one thing in an effort. And, you know, to kind of be great at something, you got to put all your attention in. So I, I would have to be away from work to doing that. So maybe someday that'll Too much happen. work to happen right now, right? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, thank you. Rocco, really appreciate you being here. So I figured let's Let's start out. Let's uh, let's talk about um, the sources of debt currently um, uh, within our market. So, um, what what do they look like today? So the one thing that is maybe not completely focused on is that there's so much and plenty of debt capital available. Okay, you know the each agency wants to do seventy five billion dollars in loans this year, but they won't. The activity's not there. Uh, life companies are meeting their goals and and wants to put out money. And so it isn't about the you know the the want the lack of money unlike the great financial crisis where money was not available. And but but the question is now with rates moving like they have and with rents stabilizing would you say versus growing some places down some places slightly up I kind of think of it as flat. And when you when you look at that um with rising interest rates, the NOIs aren't there. And so there's more stress on whether or not the debt will work for a particular transaction, whether if it's a, an acquisition or a refi. Um, right. You know, when you look at the possibilities, a lot of the, as John mentioned earlier, with the huge debt activity or transaction activity in 2021, um, a lot of that transaction debt was done with debt fund bridge loans because it, we had double digit growth and rent. We had um, a solid thought of occupancy market. And a lot of that debt was based on 80% loan to cost. On And you would get there by looking at year three or year four stabilized NOI and a projection. Right. 
And I think we might have done a couple deals in the 5.5% debt yield range on 2000 and or three-year or four-year out right. NOI stabilized. So the reason why I bring that up is anything, say, beginning of 2021 to the first middle part of 2022, were done at top prices because of that financing. And so now when you go to refi at current rate levels, you can't get to a point where you can refinance the existing debt. Right. And so we haven't, there's things that are going on with that. It hasn't fully matured as to what the reality of it is. Some of those were bought by very, you know, wealthy family type offices or, you know, institutional capital. Um, some of them were bought by syndicators. Okay. And so when you look at some of the deep pocketed folks, they're feeling pain like everybody. Um, they have a little bit more staying power, it seems like. And that's right. still how they're dealing with that is still being dealt with. And on the syndicating side, then you just have a lot more investors to raise equity fund from to cover things. And so that's kind of where, where we're at. And so what's happening, I think, is we're getting to a point where the sale of those assets is the closest thing you can get to to be able to pay off the existing debt if you have to. And and that's being discovered because cap rates are up um, from where they were. Um, they're not low enough to support, you know, some of the values needed to take pay sure. off this debt. Sure. And so that's kind of where we're in discovery. And then on refis of existing debt prior to that, you pretty much can do it, but owners don't necessarily have to do it unless their equity is being recalled or they're, you know, they have to replenish the equity so then they're in a position to actually have to sell. And so that's happening. And so that's how I would describe the and, and the debt not only comes from agencies, it also comes from life insurance companies and banks are kind of on the sidelines at the moment. They're still doing some things, but they're kind of on the sideline. It's funny, CMBS hasn't been a player at all pretty much in the multifamily just because of their pricing and all that. But there's certain situations today where you can see them, you know, with their 10-year interest only automatically. And, and again, I'm not gonna sell that because it's not quite there and the cost of debt is higher but as a potential source, it's there. And even with the debt fund problem, they're still in the market. It's just that their interest rates are too high. When you look at a SOFR at 5.34% today, and you add you know, 325 to 375 to that, you're talking about a pretty high interest rate. Right. And so to reposition with that on a new asset, it's, it, it eats into your equity, and it's keeping equity on the sidelines. Rocco, maybe just to Go jump ahead. in there. So, you know, you mentioned, you know, regional banks. So that's been a, you know, I'll say significant topic or or point of emphasis lately. Uh, I think, you know, our understanding and, and most are that some of those regional banks have a lot of, I'll just say, real estate uh, loans on construction. Uh, how do you see that playing out from a, just, you know, just an overall market perspective? So... You know, preferred equity comes into play a little bit, and that was behind the construction loans to get the loan amount up is one thing. Um, I think some recapitalization from debt funds to the ownership to try to deal with paying off the loan or sure. bringing down the loan 
And I think the sale of those assets as a lease-up properties become more prevalent um, because before, you know, 01, as we were speaking, value-add in 80s and 90s and early 2000 product with repositioning was a very focused, thought-of approach. In today's world, you know, when you're looking at opportunities to buy lease-up assets at below replacement cost, and the price per pound is, is really important. And when I speak like that, I'm not saying there's a tremendous amount of activity. When you mentioned earlier, 122 or 123 yeah. to 20, you know, there's not a lot of that, but we're moving towards that. And I think the activity of sale activity is all going to be t- dependent from my perspective, and I'm not an economist, but on stability of interest rates. When we get to stability of interest rates, instead of moving up and down 20 basis points in a week, in a day, that's when we get to a point where equity will know what to do, sellers will know what to do, and they'll kind of determine the approach. And so stability of interest rates is very important. And cap rates seem to move with treasury rates. So as treasury rates go up, cap rates go up. And just to give a basic perspective, out of the 120 sales that sold last year, the average cap rate was 5%. Uh-huh. Yeah. Prior year, it was 3.5%. And so, and the 5% with interest rates being where they're at could be considered still on the low side. And so that's why the transactions are limited because we haven't right. necessarily got to the price point. And I'm not saying it's going that way, but that's what we have to figure out. And I think stability of interest rates will, and treasury rates will determine that. Right. Perfect. Yeah, Perfect. Investors need certainty, right? Yeah. To, to pull the trigger, to move forward, to really, I'll say, uh, have confidence in their investment thesis and certain certainty matters, especially with, with, you know, the Fed hasn't been... <laughs> The most reliable group, in my opinion, over the last couple of decades in terms of predictability. So uh, I think certainty matters. And one thing I'd like to add is interest rates are up predominantly because of the indexes being up. Spreads, you know, move around a little bit, but they're relatively consistent to where they were before. You know, I was looking at our average, you know, spreads last year and, you know, average spreads this year. They're not, they're different, but not materially different, not contributing to this large increase in interest rates. Great. Good point. You know, uh, John just mentioned the Fed. You mentioned insurance companies a little bit ago. Just perfect segue into this next question. Um, Let's discuss the difference between, let's say, Fannie and Freddie and then, of course, an insurance company. Okay. So Fannie and Freddie have saved our market over the years because they always have money and they're they're programmatic. And when I say programmatic, I don't mean like they don't... there's a simple way of underwriting. No, they're programmatic in the sense that they do multifamily, they're focused on workforce housing, they're focused on affordability, and the money's there to support rent renters and, and housing demand. And with interest rates rising like they have to a point of buying single-family homes, there's at this moment, there's probably a lot more demand. There will be a lot more demand on rental housing. And so with the agencies and their availability of capital, that largely has played into our success. Now, one thing with, with the agencies, you know, it's they're compared to life companies, life companies where their advantage is they can lock the rate at the application. Where um, the agencies, we kind of go through a little bit of, of a process, you know, Freddie will lock the index and lock the spread at application for 60 days, which is pretty good, but not lock the rate till right before closing. And Fannie Mae has an early rate lock process that you've 
have to go through, which is pro which is good. But that could be anywhere from a week, I don't know, seven to 10 business days, but they'll push if they need to. So that's a way where with Life Company, you sign the app and it's done. Um, I think another difference is the agencies offer supplemental financing. So as you grow your NOI, you can get additional loan proceeds where, and that's programmatic. Um, they could they could stop doing that, so it's not a okay. guarantee. But that it since I've been doing this, it's always kind of been available. And life companies, it's not in their documents. It's not programmatic. You have to kind of have to go and, and and make a request if you want it at a particular time and see if they're open to giving such additional loan proceeds. So I I would I would say that and in underwriting wise, especially on lease up deals, you know, Fannie Mae had. They both have lease-up programs and near-stabilized programs, and life companies have the ability to look at an NOI that they're comfortable with underwriting that, that might not be in place, and then they could structure around that if they want a, an interest reserve or guarantee or some other way of covering the shortfall, um, which is a, a good thing to do. And where we've had a lot of su success, even with Mark Taylor on deals, or, is on the Fannie Mae near-stabilized program where... You can underwrite the NOI within four months of rate lock. Um, and it has to be a lease-up success, not a concession burn-off success. Understood. So one of the questions that I think, if I remember, was what kind of advice can you give on you know, lease-up deals? And believe me, I'm always into leasing it up and, and as fast as you can. But when you're selling the property and you're leasing up the property, the timing of that's very important. Because if you get too far and I'm not saying you hold up leasing, you're not operate right. I think it's more of a selection of timing, right? And so if you um, are trying to do a lease up deal, you have to qualify for what your occupancy is at a particular time. You get over 90% and leasing and you're in the mid 80s, you're approaching a point where it's not a lease up deal. But if you're in the mid 80s leasing and you're in mid to high 70s on occupancy, then it's a really good time to do it. So managing the timing of lease up with your rent is important. And the reason being, if Fannie, you know, with their thorough analysis feels comfortable with the NOI that's gonna occur in four months of rate lock, they can underwrite that. If it gets too far beyond, then you're looking at a T1, you know, or what you're comfortable with with rental collections at a particular time. And that's what you underwrite. And, and at times, that and that net rental income in the beginning part of the process is lower than what month four would be, provided it isn't a concession burn-off and lease-up scenario. And that enables you to get higher loan proceeds, which can support a better price. Otherwise, you're just going to you're going to wait and you're sure. going to wait until the T one is in place, and then you go. And so that's how I would describe well, that. I, I've seen you know we have you know over 40,000 units under construction. And as we track the market, I've seen lease-ups where, you know, there's no activity for two months and then there's 45 leases in, in three weeks. And there's just a lot of ebbs and flows. It feels like some mismanagement, of course. Uh, would you say that would hurt uh, hurt an investor if you're approaching 50% occupancy and there's all of these, these waves in terms of, of your productivity on the lease-up? Well, in order to qualify, you need to be 75% occupied to do it. So the life companies are more associated with, you know, right. less than 75% occupancy to be able to believe in the product, believe in the borrower, believe in the location, and believe in the trend, and then, you know, secure the shortfall of 
the debt service. And so that that's what that's how I would I would answer that. Yeah, I think for us, I mean, I know the answer, but um, you know, just as we approach that seventy five percent mark, it's really important that we understand pace and that we're real thoughtful in terms of what we think will happen so it's more predictable. So understanding the right rent levels, mechanisms with concessions to ensure you have the right pace matters and yes. as you approach seventy five. And and thank you for saying that because I when you're at 45, 50%, it's not like they're locking and loading on, oh, this is the way it is. They're, they're looking at the overall trend, the market, why it's that, what's going to be different, why is it different? And they're open to understanding the path to the right appropriate net rental income and just matching that to the timing. And if we could do that, they're open to it. Now, one thing I do want to say, in a market where there's a bunch of overbuilding, doing the near stable or lease up is not automatic. Um, it's It's... It's thoughtful. They'll, they'll understand who it is, what it is, where it is, why it is, and then make a decision on that. But if you're in a sub-market that's pretty be overbuilt or, or a lot of inventory under construction and your rents aren't completely thought of yet in, in terms of support and you see it, or you know, I know of a deal where the, the actual on a new property, the in-place average rent is a lot lower than other properties. And on something like that, that can make a big difference because then you can say, yeah. okay, here's the difference and this is why. And if you can make sense out of that, it, it works pretty well. Sure. You Good can point. do that. Good point. Well, let's talk about best practices for interest rate loans, uh, both floating and fixed. So floating was the go-to for yeah. 15 years, I'd say. It was the, probably the lowest cost of debt. Um, and it depends on the objective of the owner. You, you know what I mean? So if you're a long-term holder and you can lock up low long-term interest rates, do it. Do it. You know, if you're, it depends on your equity capital and the profile of your ownership as to what you actually want to do. Um, and for the longest period of time with rates being low, you didn't have cap costs issues or, you know, interest high interest fluctuation of interest rates to hurt you and if you can manage and deal with that risk, it was it turned out to be pretty good. And I don't, and I think it's hindsight is easy to sort of look back and go, that's the way it was. I don't know if we all thought about that at the time that it was going on. And so that that's how I, I would kind of describe that. And and that has dropped from last year when I looked at some of our internal info, our floating rate debt is probably seventy three percent lower this year than it was last year. And fixed rate is Big just number. beefing up. But then when you look at fixed rate, when I was thinking about this, you know, rates are higher. So you're like, okay, floating rate, high cost, volatility, index is moving. Fixed rate, you lock them in. It's a high long-term rate. Is that really where it's going to be? So you're kind of in a quandary, which is what I think is adding to the limitation of transactions that are taking place. Yep. And so... A lot of thought is potentially a five-year fixed rate loan with three years of yield maintenance. So you get through maybe a reposition or a lease up and years four and five, you have a 1% prepay. And that was pretty attractive pricing wise, but in today's interest rate environment, I don't know exactly what it is, but it could be 43 basis point add-on to your rate, which is a significant add-on to get a 1% prepay flexibility in the last two years. And so you know, that that's kind of the consideration. And some life companies, and the one thing about life companies where Fannie and Freddie are programmatic with a lot of, life companies have a lot of debt capital, but they distribute it among every asset class. And they like multifamily. Um, 
but you have to go to many life companies to decide because one life company might do two or three deals in a given market and say, okay, let's hang back. And so there's definitely life company money, but you have to test the entire market and pick the right place. And they all right. have money. And then it's just how they underwrite what they do. And when I looked at spread comparison and interest rate comparisons, they're relatively close. You know, It comes down to a specific deal, how it underwrites, who it is to get to the best pricing. But if you look at ranges of spreads, they're not that different. 175 to 225, depending on what, where, how. Now that's market rate stuff. You know, you get to affordability with Fannie and Freddie, you're going to get lower than that. So if you're 185 to 190 on a market rate deal, you might be 165 to 170, uh, depending on how if you're over 50% mission, and maybe even lower than that at times. And so that that's kind of the difference between you know life companies and the, the agencies. Well, I'd say I'd say too. You know, if, if you look back uh, through the tens, you know, to the, you know post GFC through really the pandemic, you know, capital the price of capital was low, uh, rates were incredibly low. So you you saw a bunch of I'll say investors, maybe syndicators that had never been through maybe a downturn. They just you know they see this low level of interest rates. So you are I'll say compelled to maybe go against your better judgment and just say, I'm just going to keep this thing floating because yeah. it's going to stay low forever, right? So you have to balance the the fear and the greed aspect. And I think, you know, folks that are a bit more conservative like us, you know, we're going to lock that low interest yes. rate in every time because we are long-term holders. Yes. Speaking of uh, downturn, what kind of pitfalls could we expect, if any? So the first pitfall I think of, or the one I think of is just, a reduction in transactions. So that's a pitfall Which we're saying. of what yeah. we're, we're going through with the rise in interest rates and cap rates not keeping up completely with the rise in interest rates. So that's a pitfall. Um, the other pitfall is just flat rent with a bunch of inventory coming in over the next three years. And so the impact of that is is a pitfall at the moment. Um, but I think a mitigating factor of that is the price per pound and your long-term hold and your, your holding period. So if you're holding five to seven years and, you know, a pitfall with rents and NOI not moving, if that's three years, but then years four through seven, if you get a housing shortage in 26 to 27, early 27, then you could start seeing rents move again. And then we could be in a material change situation. And and up until 2020, 2021 with COVID and material rent increases, prior to that, we were at a stable, you don't know exactly, at 3 to 4%, 3.5%. And I think we're potentially, we're moving back to, and this could be my opinion, but real estate was always a stable, hands-on, controlling investment. And the growth in it was over time not in a year. And, you know, when we had the 2021, I mean, you find someone bought a property and a year later they made $20 million on it and they didn't put a dime into it. So do it I, don't again, think, right? I don't think we yeah. ever had that, at least in my existence, I've never experienced that until, you know, the COVID period and all that. And so I know I think that, that we're moving into a, maybe a traditional real estate ownership market. And again, I don't 100% know that, but that's what it somewhat feels like. 
So, John, let's let's look at this from uh, an operational side. So, if we continue, which uh, uh, everyone is kind of forecasting this, but if we continue facing some economic headwinds, how does this affect us operationally? Well, uh, as we like to say, you're never bigger than the market. So, from a macro perspective, as you know, we see, I'll say, some storm clouds ahead. Right. From an economic perspective. Uh, there's lots of concerns. We have an election year coming up, uh, probably the most tumultuous year on record from a, an election perspective. So there's a lot of things that are unknown in terms of that. So certainty, as we mentioned with Rocco matters, that's a concern. Uh, you have flat or declining rents in the face of, I'll say, increasing supply nationally, specifically in Phoenix. That's a concern. Um, you have, uh, you know, gone are the days of underwriting big, you know, five to 10% rent growth year right. after year after year, that's gone. So how does that spin into NOI? And then you can't ignore the, uh, I'll say, significant increases in certain cost areas, right? So you think about insurance, you know, insurance nationally, you know, 20 to 35%, depending where you are, if you're Florida, Texas, it, it's higher. Brutal. Um, so controlling some of those levels matter. You have wage inflation, you have just cost to operate. Uh, if you talk to any developer in town, GCs are not pulling back on on their bids. Uh, it's still it's still it's still very high and or increasing. So, you know that hasn't transformed into any less cost for a developer. So there's a lot of headwinds happening. Um, so you know if you believe in a market uh, and believe in fundamentals long term, that matters. And I think Rocco makes a great point. We get back to a little bit more of a traditional multifamily cycle. Sure. Not this, you know, heavy merchant build sell, move, 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 boom, 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 trying to just earn a, a quick buck. Um, I think the the savvy, um, longer term, more patient investors will win out uh, in this next cycle. So given how much we have coming in supply, right, um, and the continued economic headwinds, how, what percentage would you feel, and this is for both of you, what percentage of owners right now are kind of he- facing that challenge? ahead of them? I would say that anybody bought in after first quarter, end of the first quarter 2021 to mid 2022 is having difficulty. Yeah. Unless if they were a debt fund bridge buyer, reposition buyer, redo, you know, try to buy a lease up deal and heavily finance it. Cause I did a couple of class A properties at 80% of purchase price. And I actually did one at 92% of purchase price because the rent was very low and it was a good thing to do. And so the good thing with those borrowers, they were strong financially. And so they're going through some headwinds, but it, it's it's pretty good. So I think, and then, so I think purchases in 2021, early 2022 is where we're going to see potential issues um, and have to kind of think about how to cover that. But that potentially, just thought of this, maybe that just increases our sale activity because something needs to be done. And if something doesn't come up and equity doesn't come up or equity is not replaced, then they're going to do the best they can to sell it. And if they lose money, it's easier to maybe cover the potential loss against the debt versus just carrying it because those were largely bridge loans with cap costs and okay. those cap costs could have been four. I, I, I don't know exactly, got 400,000 when they bought it and now it's 2.2 million. So when you look at a year later, going from 400,000 to 2.2 million or, you know, depending on the size alone. And, and then you have, you know, even though you bought a cap, there's still a, an increase, an increase in the interest 
expense to the owner, and you could have a significant between the cap costs and the interest reserve loss. So that's going to push a sale. And so I think that's that's sort of what what goes on. Yeah, I'd say unlike uh, GFC, post-GFC, there's a lot of capital on the sidelines. There's a lot of smart guys waiting to take advantage of these opportunities. Sure. And I think that will play out with some of what Rocco mentioned. Um, also, you have to think about multifamily as a comparison investment strategy to office industrial. I'd argue that industrials may be peaking to some degree. Um, we know a lot of the economy is driven by consumers, 65 to 70%. Uh, and you think about GDP growth um, as, as consumers start to expand their footprint in credit card debt, that's happening. Um, that's going to start to pull back at some point. So you, know, you think about the Amazons, the warehouses, You know, there's going to be less activity if you follow cash rate, uh, significantly down year over year. And that's just trucking transaction volume, uh, I'll say railroad, all of those things. Uh, we know historically when that lightens, economic occupancy comes down. So again, more headwinds there, but I think the opportunity still remains in multifamily as kind of the best hedge if you compare it to industrial office. One of the things I didn't mention about interest rates, I looked at the yield curve this morning from one of the groups that yes. came out and treasury to 10-year treasury is according to this, is above 4% going forward. So the, you know, and we don't know, you know, we, we don't 100% know, but this yield curve was that to a point where, you know, right now we're 434, we go down to the low fours and then, you know, stay in the below 415 and then get back to 427 in 2033, which is almost level to what it is right now. And so when you look at that, that's a push towards stabilized cap rates at some number that might be a spread above that or equal to it if you feel good about NOI growth in a short period of time to be able to cover their lower, you know, cap costs right. to the interest sure. rate. And so that that's that's something to consider in, in, in this whole thing. Yeah, I think that uh, plays into, you know, maybe a resurgence of value add plays, right? Trying to, you know, push that NOI growth quickly. You both uh, mentioned this, and so this is going to be for, this next question is for both of you. Um, with With today's climate, going on right now, what does it take to get a deal done? So it takes a need on the seller's part or the buyer's part okay. in a trade to be able to make something happen. And on, and on the seller side, it has to do with maybe equity redemption on a solid property. Because we, we did a deal where that was a situation and there was I don't know, six and a half to seven years remaining on the loan. It was assumable. It had a very attractive interest rate and interest only for the remaining term. So even though in this market, you're looking at these cap rates being what they are on something like that, you're still going to have, that's where you're going to find institutional capital coming out and taking a look at it and try to try to buy it. And that'll be a much lower cap rate than the average of 5%. And so I, I, I think though that's a situation I think a trade buyer who wants to trade and buy, and you know, I'm working on a deal now where it's similar situation, but this is a very smart owner and they don't just do something just to save taxes. They do it because they want a solid investment and it makes sense for them to do it and refinance it. And so that goes on. Or unless you're really under a trade situation and you have to, you have to place the dollars and that's what you want to do. And then you just put, you take less loan proceeds and then you figure out how to refinance it at some point forward, but, or you pay cash. I had one group that came, that had a, a large loan that came due 
on a property, I had to refinance it. They're institutional. They just paid it off in cash. And there's like, well, wait to see what's going on. So there is that that opportunity and possibility to, to do that sort of thing. Yeah, I just think um, by nature, you have loans expiring. That's natural every year. You have um, large funds that are you know set out to place money. I mean, there's guys that have to place money or groups. So uh, I think multifamily is still, um, I'll say, the most attractive investment vehicle for, for many. And I think that will start to stimulate some of that. And I think always psychology is at play. Um, if you look historically, talk to guys that have done this for decades, uh, 5% isn't that bad. No. You, know, you look at right. the 80s, 70s, 80s, and early 90s, um, you've seen that that trend go down. Um, I think it's, it's more appropriate um, for a more stable real estate environment. So to, to round this all out, and Rocco, I, I would love for you to chime in on this one too, but this is really meant for you. Um, so best practices for ownership groups, uh, PMCs. Um, what should they be focused on in trying to achieve going from lease up to stabilized? You know, it really depends on the investment strategy. So, you know, I'll say, as Rocco mentioned, you know, for a period of time, there was a lot of, I don't want to say greed, but there was an opportunity as a merchant builder to really get that number to, you know, sometimes just 5% at least, and you'd trade out. Um, you'd hit all your prefs and it made sense for everybody. Let's just move on. Uh, and it was a windfall uh, for that developer and, and equity team. I think today, um, you know, you have to be flexible in terms of that. You can't just say, I know we're going to go to market and sell it. Um, I think you have to have some flexibility in your thesis to think about how do I, how do I move into stabilized debt uh, and ensure that, that I'm maintaining this asset. We've had some existing clients that have gone from that philosophy, meaning, you know, we're going to build to sell to, no, no, no we want to hold these long term. Uh, we see the advantages potentially of having these in our portfolio a long time. We like the asset. We like the location. We feel good about Phoenix long term. So, you know, I think um, being flexible, being well-educated, understanding that, you know, you have great experts like Rocco to talk to to understand, you know, what you can do from a pre-lease up to stabilization perspective. Um, all of those things are at play. You know, you mentioned that too. We're from our consulting clients. We're getting that, uh, their change in their model as well, going from merchant build to long-term holder. So- Sure. Yeah, we're getting that discussion as well. Rocco? I agree with all of that. And I think what, Good we, answer. Ta what we talked about, <laughs> yeah. what, what, what we talked about earlier, just stability, uh, you know, paying attention to the balance of lease up and rent and concessions and w what's market driven versus leasing it up to the stabilized occupancy, whether if you have to offer a concession or not to do it. I'm not saying that that's always done, but sometimes you look at that right. and i rather hold back on that and just do it the way you need to do it to get the maximum rent that you can get. But then lease up is a one rent, and then as soon as you stabilize, that's another rent. And so you get closer to stabilize, it's, it's, it kind of maximizes your NOI. And underwriting is key. You, you mentioned that earlier. We're fortunate in Arizona with our taxes and our insurance. You know, we, we don't have insurance events here like other places. So, And I've always, here's a plug for... Mark Taylor. Please do. I always uh, love looking at your insurance. It's, I think it's the lowest cost of insurance I, I've see, I see. And so, and, and I learned that pretty quick that insurance costs is not a uniform thing. It's the way an owner insures their properties. Yep. And so that that's important. And so I see that. But we don't have the upward, we don't have the Texas and Florida movement in, you know, insurance costs. And then taxes, you know, once we stabilize, we have good control over our, you know, assessed value going up 5%, just subject to 
the tax rate change. And I don't know when it was. It might have been two years ago. The tax rate went down from the year before. So once you get there, you feel good about your control. But then we're into labor increases and you know other types of things. But understanding your controllable expenses is extremely important. And comping it out and using a manager who can completely prove what their operating expenses are and why, yep. that's a big deal. And that's a big deal even in the sense of if new budgeted expenses are lower than trailing expenses, if you can support it in the market, you can support it with the borrower's portfolio, and you can support it with the appraisal, you can underwrite lower expenses. And that's probably a lot easier than underwriting a higher rent. <laughs> so, yes. so that's, you know, that's underwriting is very important. True. Well, Rocco, I can't say thank you enough. This is uh, any time that I have the opportunity to speak with you, even if it's via email, I always learn something from you. Um, so we've, at the end of our uh, um, podcast, our, our meetings here, we always end with one question about what we're grateful for. You mentioned, of course, being in, in Phoenix, we're fortunate enough as far as with our insurance rates, right? Um, so, I mean, let's not be grateful for that. Let's no. find something a little bit with a little bit more to it. Um, Rocco, tell me, what, what are you grateful? So th I think it's three things. Well, one, I'm grateful for my family and my children. They've turned out incredibly well and they're self-sufficient. So that's incredibly grateful that's a lot to do from with a the personal parents. perspective. From a work perspective, I'm extremely grateful that I found this industry. You know, like you, when you find where you work and what you do, you, you don't 100% know. So then to find this industry and what it is, and even though with the ups and downs, and it, it, it was incredible. I think, and two things are really important. It's like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm great at what I do, but I work at a great company. And my success has to do with all of it. Not one, not just me. It's the entire company, the information, the brokers, the quality, you know, their expertise, the ability to do it. That's huge. And my last one is I'm grateful for our 20 plus year relationship <laughs> with nice. Mark Taylor because that helped me become because you're experts and it helps me become better at what I do. And I've been completely grateful for that, for our relationship and, and CBRE as well in our relationship. So thank you, John. Yeah, I think um, you, know, you triggered something, Rocco. I think about the relationships that I've you know gained over twenty plus years in this industry, uh, and just the the great people that find multifamily. And I always joke with uh, you know now at my age and my relationships, a lot of um, you know the the folks I've grown up with in in this in this space, uh, they have children that are you know teens, twenties, thirties, and you know some of them have gotten into multifamily, and and they always like. They always ask me like, "What what should I think about when I do that?" And I just said, "Hey, um, just know when you when you get into it, it's likely you'll stay." Uh, and you see that often over and over again because there are just great people in multifamily, regardless of what sector portion you work in. So I'm I'm just grateful for those relationships and 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 that I found multifamily many years ago. Great. I have uh, I was thinking about this before we got to this question, and uh, um, we've had a number of great speakers already, uh, guest speakers. They are experts in their own right, uh, but not one of them. They're, they've all been great, of course, not taking anything away, but not one of them have come as fully prepared as Rocco did. Three full notebooks plus prepared with the book he's going to take to his own uh, deserted island. Rocco, I'm I'm grateful for you, my friend. It's a nice plug That's for us. Uh, uh, nice, yeah, who's uh, Samantha? Samantha Bell. Samantha Bell. 
<laughs> um, Rocco, again, thank you for all the insight, for for your leadership, for just uh, the relationship and helping guide us and our clients as well. John, as always, it's a pleasure sitting next to you. Um, we cannot say uh, thank you again for joining us at another episode of Multifamily Forward presented by Mark Taylor. Come back for more. <laughs>